0: Last week, although we technically stayed in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, we skipped a little further ahead because it was Palm Sunday and we wanted to read uh, John's account of the triumphal entry. And so, as you probably expected, we're going to do the same thing today. Uh, We are going to stay in John, um, as we've been working through, but we are going to continue sort of jumping ahead from where we are because today is Easter, the feast day of the resurrection of our Lord. Today is a day where all Christians in the Western world are all celebrating and remembering that our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And so we are going to join with them as we hear only a part of the Apostle John's account of Jesus' resurrection. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, please? John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9 together. John 21 through 9. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John 21 through 9. Thus saith the Lord. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Up to this point in the narrative, Jesus has been crucified and a disciple named Joseph of Arimathea uh, buried him. He covered him with the burial spices and buried him in an empty tomb that he found. However, this burial was a little rushed uh, and it was rushed for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it was rushed because Jesus was crucified on a Friday, which meant During his death, there was the coming Sabbath, and Jews are not allowed to work on Sabbath. You can't touch a dead body. You can't lift a dead body. And so they needed to get him buried before the Sabbath, and so they were rushed. But there was an additional reason that they were rushed, is because at this point in time, the disciples of Christ are terrified of the Jewish people. They have been proven wrong. Their Messiah is not the Messiah. He's now been captured and killed. And so great persecution has already started to come to them. And so not only was Joseph rushed to do this, but he had to do it under the cover of night and secrecy out of fear of persecution. And so it's safe to say that while he was a faithful disciple who tried to honor Jesus, the job wasn't completely done right. And so this led Mary Magdalene. And we know from the other gospels accounts that she was not alone. John focuses only on her, but other women were with her. They decided, well, we we want to go and pay tribute properly to the body. We don't know how we're going to get the stone removed. Maybe we'll meet someone there who's willing to do it. But let's at least try to get the body um, buried properly. But they as well could not do that on the Sabbath. And so they had to wait for Sunday morning. They had to wait for the first day of the week. And they too, out of fear of the Jews, left very early hiding under the cloak of darkness to go and pay tribute to Jesus' body. But as they get there, something disturbs them. The stone has already been moved. This is a very scary and sad revelation for them. The reason it's so scary and so sad is because grave robbing was a very common experience in the first century Israel. As a matter of fact, it was extremely common just throughout the entire Roman Empire. So common that actually Rome how was constantly coming up with these very new severe laws and penalties against it. Grave robbing was incredibly common. And so as they approach and they see the tomb open, that's probably their first assumption. Jesus has been stolen. And even if it wasn't grave robbers, the options most on the table for them are not good. If it's not grave robbers, then it must mean that the the Roman Empire, or maybe the Jewish leaders, they were upset that he got this proper burial, and so they went to maybe disrespect the body, and maybe they took the body. But from the women's perspective, a rolled away tomb is nothing but bad news. So they go back to the other disciples to share the bad news. And we're told from the other Gospels that the disciples don't even believe them. They think they're crazy. But apparently, they're eventually able to at least convince Peter and John that you need to come check this out. And so Peter and John approach the tomb, and unlike, and, and as they get there, they decide to examine the place. But to them, something strange has happened. They, they see evidences that suggest maybe there's more here than originally meets the eye. There's something suspicious here. As they examine the tomb, they notice Jesus' burial linens laying there, and the one specifically around his face was neatly folded up in its own place. This changes their perspective as to what maybe has happened. Especially John, whom the text says actually came to believe in this moment. There are two reasons why these folded up linen cloths moved John to faith. Uh, Primarily, the linen cloths prove, well, I won't say two, I'll I'll condense them into one. The linen cloths prove and promote that something supernatural has happened here. Something supernatural has happened here. And why do we say this? Well, because Jesus could not have unwrapped himself. So one of the things we know is that somehow Jesus has come unwrapped. And we know that the way that they would wrap a dead body, it was so tightly done that you couldn't, if you weren't actually dead, you couldn't unwrap yourself. We get that, by the way, from Lazarus' resurrection. I'll read this to you just briefly. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He was buried just like Jesus was. With the linen cloths and the face covering. And as he resurrects, he's still bound up. Other people have to unbind him. So Jesus clearly has been unbound. And this is where it starts to get more interesting. We know that the cloths being left in the place is not the work of grave robbers. A, grave robber, a set of grave robbers, especially with penalty of death looming over their heads, they're not unwrapping the body and folding up the linen cloth and putting away. As a matter of fact, they might even be able to sell those cloths. They're just taking the body and everything else in the tomb as it is. John knows this is not the work of grave robbers, and it's probably not even the work of the government. Because again, they too would have just taken the body as it is. Something amazing has happened here. Who has unwrapped Jesus? My suspicion is that it was the angels who rolled away the tomb. We know that the angels rolled away the stone from the other gospels. I think they unwrapped him. The common position in the Christian church is that Jesus supernaturally, through a miracle, passed through the linen clothes. But either way, especially John, he knows the evidence has been made clear to him Something miraculous has happened. Jesus' body has not been stolen. He's alive. He got up, was unwrapped, and he folded up his faith cloth and he sat it down, and he left. And so this Easter morning, I want us to make two very broad observations about the passage we just read, and then we'll narrow them down into some more specific applications. Let me just give you a couple broad observations. Number one, what we just read is very much a historical event. The resurrection was a real, bodily, historical event. The real Jesus physically, literally came back from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Christ was not just some spiritual metaphor, as modern day liberal theologians try to present it. It's not just a moral story that religions have passed on to improve our lives. It's certainly not just a point of doctrine, although it is that. It's not just an ancient tradition that's been passed down. This is a verifiable, documented, literal, historical event John is not retelling us the ancient myths of his forefathers. He's telling us what he saw. What he touched. And what the other people around him saw and touched. This is history. And the reason I draw that out is because I think John's account is very much leading us to see that because it it, it contains what we call marks of authenticity. If you're looking at an ancient document, and and radical claims are being made. You look for marks of authenticity. Modern day detectives do this all the time with people's stories. Detectives learn when they hear a story to sort of tell this sounds made up. Or sometimes they bear marks of authenticity. No, their testimony sounds legitimate. And Mark's gospel is containing marks of authenticity. And it shows that some of the details we read in here, in other words, to be very clear, it shows that this is not just some fabricated, made-up story. But what it actually reads like is a highly detailed eyewitness account. And we see that in a number of reasons. Look at verse 1 with me. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let's stop there. Notice that, that John is being very specific as to the uh, timing of the events. He's telling us it happened on this day at this time. What you'll notice, uh, my wife gets really into true crime stuff, and so we watch a lot of like you know, uh, what are they called? Murder documentaries, I guess. And to me, a, a really fascinating thing, one thing I love to watch is I love to watch detectives grill and question suspects. And one of, you know, it's a common thing you'll notice when someone is lying is they don't like to be specific. Usually it's the detectives having to say, okay, what day did this happen? Okay, what time did this happen? Was it dark? Was it light out? What could you see? Was there anyone with you? What time was it? Did you notice anything? They've got to get the details out because the liar doesn't want details because the more details involved, the more you have to hang them with. So they just want to give very general stories and it's the detectives having to say, I need something more specific. Who was with you? Where were you? What time was it? What did it look like? Give me the details. John, you don't need to pry them out of John. He's, he's offering them to you freely. I will tell you the exact day and the exact time and exactly where we were. What else do you want to know? He is bearing marks. He's not hiding anything. He's being very, very specific here. But there's even more. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there. What was the point of telling us all that? Why did we need to know that they left at the same time, but John's faster? John outran Peter, and he got there first. Apparently, that's important. But it's also important to know that even though he outran Peter and got there first, he just looked in. He didn't go in. It wasn't until Peter got there that Peter led the charge and went in. And then John came in. What's the point of all these details? You know what the answer is? I don't know. I don't know. Um, You will find ancient commentators who will turn these into, like, analogies. um, And they will will draw these big spiritual applications from it. And I, I tend to not follow that. Um, I, I prefer, actually, Augustine's approach. Augustine, in his commentary, said, speaking of all these details, he says, I'm sure that there is a real spiritual, theological meaning and relevance to all this, but I have neither the time nor the interest to find it out. That's kind of my approach. I don't know what theological significance is behind all of these details, but here's what I do know, that these details make the story far more authentic. John is very clearly telling us the things he saw and experienced down to the last little minute detail, the stuff that even a detective would be like, okay, John, I I don't care about all that. It's like these highly irrelevant. It's because he's just telling us the story so much. So he's willing to tell us when we left, who ran faster, who got there first, but who went in first. I I think you maybe get the point. These are not, Random, made-up, generalized stories. We are reading an eyewitness account of something that actually happened in history. And I would submit to you, I don't know what else, other than that John is honestly portraying what honestly happened. Any other theory you have, I don't know what else accounts for the rapid rise of Christianity in the first and second century if it wasn't the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. In other words, if if what we're supposed to assume about the three characters in this story, that Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John got together for a coup, and they just made some story up, it's hard for me to imagine that that made-up story by these three individuals would completely turn the world around in less than 100 years. Especially because the very context where these alleged stories started to grow and rise... The culture around it had had an important vested interest in keeping that story from rising. You think the Romans wanted people to continue to believe that Jesus was the King and the Messiah? You think the Jews wanted people to keep worshiping Jesus as the King and the Messiah? The Rome and Israel, the two most powerful influences in the area, were not at all interested in people continuing to worship this man they just put to death. So if this is a lie, if this is some fabricated story, and for some reason this lie is convincing hundreds and hundreds of people, would it have not been pretty easy for the powers that be to disprove it? What do they have to do? Just give us the body. Just give us the body. You you know where it was buried. You oversaw the crucifixion. You put the guards at the tomb and they were there all night long. Just give us the body. They couldn't do it. What are the odds that the entire Roman Empire and the entire Judaistic establishment were unable to completely and quickly refute the made-up lies of three hysterical, depressed Jewish nobodies? The reason the story took off and the reason Rome couldn't stop it and the reason Israel couldn't stop it, is because it happened. It was real. It's a historical event. And it's important for us to know that and to teach our kids that. But it would be a mistake, however, to think of it as only that. That's an amazing thing, don't get me wrong. But you can swing too far the other direction and treat this as pure history and not our important broad observation that, wow, this is historical, yes, this is very much a theological event. It's not just a historical event. Broad observation number two, this is a very much theological event. Look at verses eight and nine with me. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John tells us that he came to believe by evidence what he could have foreseen by faith. He came to be convinced by evidence what he could have already been convinced of by faith in the scriptures. You see, neither John nor Peter yet understood that the resurrection did not take place in a vacuum. The resurrection was not just some guy rose from the dead and so we should start listening to everything he says. That's oftentimes how pastors and apologists want to present the resurrection. They want to dislocate it from its... The theology comes later. He rose from the dead and and now we'll listen to him. But the resurrection was surrounded in a theological context. It was absolutely a theological event. It was the climax of a theological story that God has been telling for centuries. And he's continuing to tell today. And, And I'm getting all this because... What is the implication of verse 9? The resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. We were told this was going to happen. And Jesus told his disciples this was going to happen. He wasn't just some guy who came back from the dead. He said he was going to and he said why he was going to and God prophesied it hundreds of years ago. This was a theological event. And what that means, here's why all this is important, what it means is that the resurrection then has purpose. There's a meaning to it. It means something. Without the theological context, this might sound kind of radical to you, but I'm being 100% serious. Without the theological context, we can simply throw the resurrection into a big metaphorical bucket which already contains a host of other historical realities that scientists can't make sense of today. The fact remains that we live in a strange world. And strange things happen all the time. There are lots of things in history that we don't know. We can't figure out. I don't know how this happened. How did Stonehenge happen? How did they build the pyramids? You don't know that. Crazy things happen. Why isn't the resurrection just this weird... Yeah, some Jewish guy came back from the dead. That's crazy. Move on with your life. Throw it into the scientific bucket of things we can't explain. Jesus' resurrection, why is it important? Like, seriously, if someone sat, if you sat next to someone on the bus or your neighbor came up and said, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, so what? What's that got to do with me? The theological context of the resurrection gives it meaning. It's why it's important. It's why we can't just write it off as some weird historical event that we don't know how it happened. It was prophesied and explained. Now, admittedly, the Old Testament didn't explain it explicitly. But it did explain it through types and through shadows. And and if you want to see an example of that, by the way, uh, we're not going to go to them today. Uh, But you can write down in your Bibles Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. There you will see the Apostle Peter himself make a case from the Old Testament that Jesus had to be resurrected. You can see a similar case in Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 41 from the Apostle Paul, where he as well will make a case to the Jews from the Old Testament that Christ Jesus had to be resurrected. So Acts 2 and Acts 13 will will begin that process of your lifelong exploration and how the Old Testament scriptures teach us the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he, as the text says, had to resurrect. But the point I want us to, again, really understand is that this was a theological event in a theological context. And that means it has meaning for us. And so here's what I want us to do with the rest of our time. I want us to get really specific. What does it mean? Jesus rose from the dead. So what? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Why is that important? Why have we made such a big worldwide celebration out of this? There's a lot of answers to that question. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to leave you with three. The first thing is the, resurrected, the resurrection means that Jesus Christ is Lord. The resurrection proves the lordship of Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This is one of the verses I just told you to write down, but we're just going to look at the very tail end of it. To see the full argument, you'll need to go back further. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look just at verses 32 through 36. After Peter proves, both evidentiary and from the Old Testament, primarily from the Old Testament, proves that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, here's his conclusion. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is very clear that this reference to the Messiah being ascended to the power of God after his resurrection is not about David. It's about Jesus. And the promise of the resurrection is that he would ascend to God where he would, David's Lord, so not David himself, but David's Lord would sit at the right hand of Yahweh until Yahweh makes all his enemies a footstool at his feet. In other words, Peter's application, Christ rose from the dead, that makes him Lord of the nations. That makes him Lord of everything. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king of kings. And how do we know this? Because God raised him from the dead. And seated him in heaven at his right hand. Jesus is Lord. He rose from the dead. But that leads nicely into the second application. Jesus is Lord. Which means, which proves, his resurrection proves the day of judgment. That Jesus resurrected proves that each and every person will stand before him in judgment. Keep, stay in the book of Acts, but turn over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This is, let's look just at verses 30 and 31 together. Here, Paul is actually preaching not to Jews, but to Gentiles. And he is going right for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he's trying to convert these Greek philosophers And let's look at his conclusion to his sermon. Verse 30 of Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How does Paul apply the resurrection? Well, he's saying every single person everywhere will stand before a man that God has put in the place of judge. And he's saying that man is Jesus. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ on judgment day in a given account for their life. And the Greek philosophers say, how do you know that I'm going to stand before this Jesus guy? And what's Paul's answer? He rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead, vindicating that he is Lord. And what do lords do? What do kings do? They judge. They issue out penalties. They issue out blessings and rewards. That's what kings do. If Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that means each and every one of us will stand before him one day. And so that's what I say. You know what's the best Easter tradition someone could have? You know, I'm sure every one of you in here has grown up. If you grew up Christian, you've got different Easter traditions. And some of you practice a bunch of Easter stuff. And then your other friends tell you it's all pagan. And you're sinning. And we have these wars. And we've got all these Easter debates. But you know, it's an incontroversial, uncontroversial, forgive me, very easy, very important Easter celebration. A tradition every single person should be practicing. You know what you should do the best way to practice Easter? Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ repent, and come to Christ. That's the most important, awesome way you can celebrate Easter. Because that's what Easter means. Christ rose from the dead, therefore, all men will give an account. If you want to honor God this Easter Sunday, turn from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. In other words, what I'm inviting you to do, my Easter present to you, is to receive forgiveness from the crucified Christ so that you can escape the judgment of the risen Christ. But there's a third very important thing for us. Oh man, I'm getting emotional already. Jesus' resurrection doesn't just prove that He is Lord and that He will judge the nations. Jesus' resurrection means that there will be a general resurrection. We too will resurrect one day. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're gonna begin in verse twenty. Paul is actually refuting some false teachers came into the church at Corinth, and they denied the bodily resurrection. They just saw resurrection as maybe a spiritual metaphor, maybe we'll live spiritually, but, but we won't actually resurrect from the dead. And Paul refutes that idea, and then he turns to proclaim the truth to them. And notice what he says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Let's stop there. Paul's line of reasoning is that because Christ rose from the dead, it's a necessary proof that we will rise from the dead. And he makes that connection because of his covenantal understanding with the Old Testament. In the same way that we were once under Adam, and Adam's death brought death to us, well, in the New Covenant, we're now under Christ. And so if Christ lives, what is he going to give us? Life. Life in Adam's covenant Adam will give you what only he can give you which is condemnation and death in Christ's covenant he will give you what only he can give you which is righteousness and life and his life is not just some general theological term we're talking literally he rose from the dead bodily to live forever that's the life you share in that's the life you participate in Christ's resurrection means you're going to resurrect if you're in him Paul describes this metaphorically as the first fruits and what he's appealing to is in the Old Testament part of the law, a certain portion of the harvest would have to go to the temple and the first blooming sprout, whatever you call it, the first fruit that you see was always brought to the temple first. And this sort of served the same purposes that we use with down payments, Where You put a down payment on a house or a car. The purpose of a down payment is to give a, a lump sum up front and that sort of gives a surety that the rest is coming. Here's, 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 a, here's a small portion, and that just sort of assures you that I, I, I will be faithful and I will bring the rest. A first fruit offering is very much like a down payment. So what Paul is saying is Christ is the down payment of resurrection. He resurrected bodily and stood before God and said, I'm the down payment, the rest is coming soon. I'm the first of many the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. I'm the down payment. There is a general resurrection coming soon. Everyone that I know, everyone that is in me, everyone that believes me, they will experience this glorious resurrection with me in due time. Christ's resurrection means your resurrection. We are not going to be a spirit floating around eternally in the ether somewhere. You're not going to just cease existing. You're going to get your body back. Better than ever. And that's why I get so emotional. There's just a lot going on in our church right now. There's a lot of people that I love that are going through some some really hard times with their bodies right now. Everyone, if you're a member here, you know of what's happening to Laura. My wife and I, have been. we visit her every night to help her with some things while Marty's working. And um, it's very difficult to see the things that are happening to her body. And if you read the update, you know of Jed and Rachel Stitzel, former members here who moved to Midland. And Jed's little sister who was in the motorcycle accident is now in a coma, unresponsive. The doctors do not believe she will ever have brain activity ever again. And I started thinking... Why did this have to happen so close to Easter? How could they possibly enjoy Easter? Now I'm not saying that their Easter day is going to be filled with nothing but hope. Easter is hard for Laura today. It's hard for Annalise today. It's hard for whoever you know that's dying of cancer. Whoever you know that was in the last car accident. It's hard for people whose bodies are breaking. Their bodies are broken. Because that's the world we live in, a world of death and decay. And that's all we know. How could we enjoy Easter? And then I switch my perspective. Easter is exactly what Laura needs right now. Easter is exactly what the Stitzels need right now. Because you want to know why? You want to know what Easter promises us? This body of death and decay is not the final story. This is not the only body we're going to experience. Our bodies will not see decay forever. Our bodies will not be broken forever. We too, in Christ, will one day rise from the dead. Laura will walk again. Annalise is going to think again. And she's going to walk better than she's ever walked. And she's going to think better than she ever thought. You are going to get a glorified, resurrected body. Everything you go through in this life is the worst it will ever be for you if you're in Christ. Because we're going to get our bodies back. We're going to overcome death, we're going to overcome decay, we're going to overcome cancer, we're going to overcome sickness, and why are we going to do this? Because Christ, our covenant head, did it for us. He defeated death, He defeated decay, He defeated sickness, and He's going to give us our bodies back more glorified than we've ever experienced. The resurrection means that this life is not the end of the story for us. As a matter of fact, as many blessings as we have, this life, if you're in Christ, it's the worst it'll ever be. And how do I know that? Because Mary, John, and Peter found an empty tomb. That's how I know that. Because the tomb was empty, and it still is. And that means that Christ is alive. He has risen, and He has seated at the right hand of God. And this means that He is Lord. Lord. And that as Lord, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And at that final day when we are all resurrected, those of us who had been anxiously awaiting His coming, we will live in His kingdom and glory forever and ever.